Amen. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your spirit always being with us as believers. Lord, your word calls us to walk worthy in a manner that is worthy of the calling with which we have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another as believers in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Lord, you called us as a church to this because there is one body and one spirit, just as we were called in one hope of our calling. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And Lord, we thank you for the unity that is shown in you and the unity that should be shown in all of the saints, all of the true church. Then Lord, we gather to worship one Lord and that is the Lord Jesus Christ that we gather to hear and grow in one faith, and that is the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And Lord, one baptism, and that is the baptism into the body of Christ, and that there's only one God, that all other gods are idols. And there's one Father of all, with the transcendent God, and the Father of all who believe in him through his son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, as Father, you are the Father of all. You are over all. You are the sovereign God who reigns and rules over all creation. And you are through all who are in you. And you dwell in all of us through the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we thank you for this transcendent truth as believers, as a church. And Lord, through the years as we follow Christ, Lord, we thank you for the way that you have fitted the church together as a single body, according to the proper working of each part of your church by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we've witnessed the growth of the body as it is built up in love. And Lord, we ourselves are members of that one body, the true church consisting of all who are redeemed. Lord, we believe in one Holy Spirit who indwells us both individually and collectively as a church. This spirit, Lord, is the divine source of our life and our power. And Lord, as we gather, we trust in one hope, one way to heaven, because we would know that there's only one Lord, one faith, and one baptism, and one God and Father over all. And Lord, my prayer for our church and for other true churches is that we continue to endeavor to sustain the unity in the bond of peace. And Lord, we thank you for the organic diversity that exists in the body. Not the way that people and churches try to force diversity, but Lord, we thank you for organically bringing all people together to worship you as the only God. Lord, that is how true unity looks. And Lord, as you bring us all together, you've given separate gifts to each one of us that blend wonderfully together, like ingredients in a favorite recipe of ours, so that the body wonderfully manifests the true beauty of Christ as we all work together using the gifts that you have given all believers. And Lord, we long this morning that Christ may be on full display through us as his body. We have no desire for the praise and honor of this world. We have no desire to be approved of by the world. Because, Father, all the world wants the church to do is to compromise on biblical truth. The world approves of churches that acquiesce 
to the rebellion of our culture. But Lord, that does not bring true unity, but division. Lord, we have no esteem for the superficial or for the ceremonial. We have no regard for the works done primarily to be seen by other people. Lord, rather we desire as a church that your spirit would have his way in our hearts. The spiritual treasure that we possess. That they may shine through. Lord, your strength has made us perfect in weakness. And Lord, I pray for those of us this morning who may be weak in different areas. Weakness in our marriages. Weakness as parents. As children. Dealing with weaknesses in our work life. In our home life. Lord, as you told the Apostle Paul, you encourage us as saints that your strength is made perfect through our weakness. And Lord, we can't experience your strength if we ourselves think that we have all the strength. Because Father, we don't. We are we're weak. We are frail. Our, our bodies tire. Our spirits get weary. Because Lord, we try to shoulder the burdens that life brings instead of taking them to you. And Lord, your glory is put on display in us when you become our strength. And Lord, this is such an unspeakable privilege that is for the redeemed sinners such as we are. That Lord, we we're sinners, we're, we're, we're redeemed. But not only that, Lord, but we serve a God. We're redeemed by a God who acts as our strength, who is always our strength when we are weak, who is always a very present help in trouble. And Lord, we thank you that you are a present help to all of us who call to you. Lord, we thank you for sermons and Bible lessons and Bible studies that accurately convey your holy word and serve as a means of grace that enables us to experience your truth and your power and your love. Lord, we pray and ask that our hearts would be good soil that receives the seed of your word by hearing, accepting, understanding, and obeying it. Lord, your word has dispelled our doubts, has diminished our encouragements, has convicted us, confronted us, humbled us, and kept us from any sense of self-importance. Lord, pour out your blessings on our labors in your name as preachers, as men of God. Help us to function in your strength. And Lord, pour out your power on your people. And may your church be faithful and fruitful in proclaiming the message of salvation. Lord, I pray this not just for our church, but also for our sister churches, for our like-minded churches, for Anderson Bible and Grace Fellowship and Redeemer and Christian Fellowship and Iron City Baptist and Mountain View and other like-minded churches and like-minded men that you may pour out your power on their people. And that all of our churches may be fruitful and faithful in proclaiming the message of salvation. And Lord, help us as men to be faithful and proclaiming your truth boldly in a world that rejects your truth. Lord, we are privileged and humble to be counted as your fellow workers. Lord, give us faithful and devoted hearts. May we be true to your plan for the church. Keep us ever mindful to take care how we build it on that foundation that was laid by the apostles. Lord, as I close, may you incline our hearts to your truth. Guide our steps as we seek to walk in your ways and obey all your commandments. 
May you, Lord, instruct us this morning from heaven as we open up your word. May we only hear from you this morning what the Spirit has to say to the church. Father, hear these requests, we pray in Jesus' name. And may all the peoples of the earth know that you are God and there is no other. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Uh, let us open up the word of the Lord this morning. We're continuing our message series in the parables of our Lord Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. And this morning we want to look at the parable of the wicked tenants in Matthew 21 verses 33 through 46. And again, these parables are instructive to us as we look at the Lord teaching in his word. Matthew 21, verses 33 through 46. Amen. This is the word of the Lord, Matthew 21. It says here, beginning at verse 33, Hear another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then the last of all, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the sign, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? They said to him, He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whoever it falls, it will grind him to power. Now when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parable, they perceived that he was speaking of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. May the Lord give us ears to hear. Observation, just a few of them uh, with this parable. This parable is the second in the trilogy of parables concerning God's judging of the Jewish leaders by taking the kingdom away from Israel exclusively and opening it to the Gentiles. We looked at the first one last week of the parable of the two sons and this is the second of those three parables now in this parable the landowner is God the vineyard is the work of the kingdom 
The tenants are the Jewish religious leaders. The servants are the Old Testament prophets. And the son is undoubtedly Christ, showing his deity as God's son. Now, if you notice in this parable, uh, Jesus asked the religious leaders a question in which his answer is self-condemning. He did this also in the last parable when he asked them, uh, which son do you think uh, did what was right? And then they said it, so that was a, that their answer was self-condemning, and the same is the case in this parable. He asked the religious leaders a question, and the answer that they answered was about them. So it was a self-condemning answer to the question. Now the the thing is that Israel was supposed to bring forth the fruit which represents God's coming kingdom. That was for Israel. That was what they were supposed to do. But this parable shows that they failed in that task. And we see this throughout the Gospel of Matthew and throughout all the Gospels where uh, Jesus came performing miracles, bringing the gospel, the good news of the kingdom, and yet he was rejected by the leaders of God's chosen people of Israel. He was rejected by the same people that he came to save. These religious leaders, instead of accepting Christ as Messiah, the, the Holy One sent of God, Instead of receiving him, they rejected him at every end. They took every turn to refute him. They took every opportunity to do that. So Israel was supposed to bring forth the fruit. But this parable shows that they failed in that task. Instead, they rejected the Messiah. And this is why Jesus alludes uh, to Psalm 118. Uh, verses 22 to 23, we see that in verse 42. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. That Psalm 118 is, is, is foreshadowing Christ as the chief cornerstone of the church. If you know about cornerstones and building, especially in, especially in uh, ancient times, they, they built the cornerstone literally in a the corner. They put this cornerstone down first and built the rest of the structure around that stone. That stone was the setting of that foundation. If you look at a lot of uh, older uh, buildings, especially here in Addison downtown, you'll see some of the windows that have the arc at the top and they have the little V-shaped stone at the top of the arc. That's like the cornerstone. And they built the rest of the bricks around. Uh, if you look at like the, court, the county courthouse and some of the older uh, buildings, you see that uh, architecture from the uh, 19th and early 20th century and that's the way they did a lot of the windows back then. They, they, they built the cornerstone first. It was always like cement looking and built the rest of the bricks around it. So next time you go through town, you'll see that. Say, oh, okay. But that's how they built windows. They built it around the cornerstone. A lot of older buildings were built with the cornerstone at the corner. And some buildings have a marker for that cornerstone. And it shows that that's where it was laid. And that alludes back to this uh, passage right here. So he was the chief cornerstone, but he was what? He was rejected. And this nation, as it says here in verse 43, therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. The nation in this parable refers to the church, but that does not mean that Israel will be removed and that the church would replace. That's not what that means. Okay? Because Israel will not be replaced by the church. A lot of uh, some denominations uh, preach that. That the church is supposed to replace Israel, but that's not true. That's not that's not biblical. And Paul says this in uh, Romans 11 and 26 when he himself is talking about <laughs> Israel. He says, and so all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away the ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So Israel will be saved. True Israel will be saved. So the church is not going to replace 
Israel. That's what, unfortunately, um, some sects of uh, Pentecostalism teach that, um, you know, you heard of John Hagee and guys like him, they, they preached uh, replacement theology. That's what that's called, that the church is true Israel. But the scriptures uh, testify to something else. Now, the interpretation of this parable was found in verse 43. Again, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. That is the interpretation of this parable. In other words, it's saying that the kingdom would not be for Jews only, but for Jew and Gentile alike. If you've been doing a reading challenge with me this month through the book of Acts, you'll see Acts 10, which was where the gospel went to Cornelius. Cornelius was a Gentile. And uh, Peter, you know, God came to him in a dream and, and uh, you know, the dream about all these animals and everything. And, and, and Peter said he would not touch anything that's unclean or common. And God told him don't call anything unclean or common. Gave him a dream to him to go to Cornelius' house and told Cornelius the same thing. So when he came to Cornelius, Cornelius told him what the Lord told him. God sent Peter to Cornelius and the gospel was proclaimed to Cornelius and his house, and all the house was saved. And then in chapter 11, Peter was asked, hey, you know, why are you bringing the gospel to the Gentiles? And Peter told the dream that he had and uh, that to not call anything uncommon or unclean. He told them that the gospel was to go to the Gentiles also. So this was a fulfillment of this parable right here that we're seeing today, what you're reading in the book of Acts. That's when the gospel went to the Gentiles because before that, it was exclusively for uh, the Jews. And Paul, Paul was a Jew. And Paul was sent to minister to the Gentiles. All of Paul's letters, the Romans, Corinthians, Colossians, <coughs> Ephesians, Philippians, all of those, the Thessalonians, all those are Gentile churches. So Paul brought the gospel to the Gentiles. So this parable, Jesus is saying, that the kingdom would not be for Jews only, but for Jews and Gentiles alike. And the new people would be gathered out of many nations and gather as one nation. And that nation consists of Jews and non-Jews. That is the glory of the gospel, that there's no, no nation, no people group that is left out. All who receive Christ will be saved. No matter what nation they're from, no matter what their ethnicity is, no matter what the melanin count is in their skin, that doesn't matter. All who receive Christ will be part of his kingdom without partiality. Now, the central meaning of this parable is that God is taking the kingdom away from Israel and giving it to those who will be fruitful. And the big idea is that the message of the kingdom will either break men in repentance or crush men in their sins. And that comes from verse 44. Whoever falls on this stone will be broken. On whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. We will get to that uh, in our principles. So two principles we will operate from today. The first one is the kingdom of God will be taken from those who reject Christ's messiahship, rather, and mission. He begins this parable by saying, hear another parable. And this is as if to say, you know, I'm not down with you yet. <laughs> I still have another parable of warning and rebuke. So, in other words, he's on a roll. He told that first parable, and now he's saying, here's another parable for you. Okay. And as the landowner, looking at the parable here, hear another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard. So as a landowner, God was sending his messengers to Israel, calling them back to him through repentance. And this is the message, actually, of all the prophets of the Old Testament. When you read the Old Testament prophets, all of them are calling Israel back to God. Now, the natural reaction of man is to shoot the messenger. You know, they ignore the message. They shoot the messenger because they don't like the message. 
It's kind of what people do on social media. They make uh, what we call ad hominem attacks. They attack the personality of the person because they don't like their opinion, what they said. So they start calling them names. They, they shoot the messenger. But this was done to the prophets of old. And it is still being done today for those who proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm going to tell you, if you put some gospel truth, I mean true truth, on your social media page, watch all the hate you get. People are going to attack you. It triggers them to hear gospel. You can put all these nice pictures and stuff on there. You get 100 likes or 200 likes. You put a nice little picture on there and, and you know, people, you look beautiful, handsome, blah, 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 whatever. But put some gospel truth on there and see what happens. See how those same people who liked your picture turn on you in the comments. Why? Because that's what happens when you proclaim the gospel truth. And that is what happened to the prophets of old. The reaction to those who heard from the prophets was to shoot the messenger. And the Jews, not individually, but as a nation, they have historically rejected God's prophets and messengers. This is what we see in the first part of this parable. God, the landowner, sent the prophets who are represented by the servants in the corrupt state of the Jewish church to reprove and to rebuke the priests and to admonish them as well as the people of the duty which they owed unto God, which was to obey him and to serve him. That's what the prophets of the Old Testament came. They came to the priests. They came to the leaders. They came to the priests of God's people because it was the priests who were leading the people astray. Those prophets came to the priests to admonish them, to reprove them, to rebuke them, to correct them. And they also came to the people and reminded them of their duty. Jesus said in Matthew 5 and 12, so persecuted they the prophets. And Matthew Henry said this about that. He said, so persecuted they the prophets, referring to Matthew 5 and 12, who were hated with a cruel hatred. They not only despised and reproached them, but treated them as the worst of malefactors. They beat them and killed them and stoned them. It reminds me, I was reading back in uh, 1 Kings 19th chapter. This was after uh, Elijah had defeated the 450 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. You know, when he told Israel, choose this day whom you will serve. You know, why do you halt between two opinions? You know, make a choice. Are you going to serve the prophets of Baal or are you going to serve the sovereign Lord? And he stood on one side and the 450 prophets of Baal stood on the other side. And through the Lord's work, the prophet Elijah had defeated those 450 prophets. And, and Elijah had all of them killed. And when word got to Jezebel, who was King Ahab's wife, <laughs> then Jezebel threatened to kill Elijah. And Elijah went and hid uh, in a brook and lamented because of this wicked uh, queen. And God revealed to him, God told, uh, this is what uh, Elijah's lament was. This is in 1 Kings 19 and, and, and 10. It says, so he said, this is Elijah, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. So he was the last prophet standing. All the other prophets have been killed during his time. He's the last one standing. Why? Because those prophets were going to the people calling them to turn back to God. And what did the people do instead? They killed them. Because it says here back in 1 Kings 19 and 1, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. This is after, after Mount Carmel. 
also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent the messenger to Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. <laughs> In other words, she's going to kill him like he killed the prophets. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. So, you know, he heard that threat from um, Jezebel, and he fled. Why? Because he was a prophet of God who came in the righteousness of God, who came by the call of God to call these people back to God. And she didn't <laughs> like it. And so she sought his life. Some prophets were beat. Some were killed. Second Chronicles 36 and 16 says, but they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. This was when Israel was going into captivity. God had finally had enough and gave them over to the Babylonians. That's what this part of Second Chronicles uh, is about. This was the fall of Jerusalem in 586 uh, B.C., they mocked the messengers of God. They despised God's words through the prophets. And they scoffed at them. They insulted them. Until the wrath of the Lord arose against his own people. Until there was no remedy. So we see the treatment of Israel. They beat Jeremiah. Jeremiah was beaten by his own people. And they beat him because of that. They killed Isaiah. They stoned Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada. They stoned him in the temple. So this is what they did to the prophets that came before them. So when you know that, you see why Jesus said what he said in this parable. So in this parable, remember all those servants represent the prophets that came before. So when the son, the man said, let me see my son. Surely they will respect my son, it says here in verse 37. But when they saw the son, what did they do? They said, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So when the son who, who represents Christ was sent by the landowner, the religious leaders killed him. Which was a foreshadowing of Christ's crucifixion at their hands because it was the religious leaders who handed Christ over to the Romans because they couldn't do it themselves. Only the Romans could carry out the death penalty. The, the, uh, the Jewish leaders could not do it. So they had to turn Christ over to the Romans. They had to turn Christ over. The religious leaders of Israel turned their Messiah over to the Romans to be executed on the cross. They also rejected him and his call to repentance through John the Baptist. John the Baptist came. That was his ministry, calling people, repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. That was the ministry of John the Baptist. He came to call Israel to repentance. But they rejected him too. It must be noted that this parable does not say that the Jews would be cast out of the kingdom. I said that earlier, but we just have to be reminded of that. But it is an indictment more so on the religious leaders who oppose Christ and his messianic ministry at all terms. When you read the Gospels, you'll see that's where his opposition came from. It came from the religious leaders. It came from the Pharisees. It came from the Sadducees. It came from the high priests. 
That's where his opposition came from. Those are the ones who sought to lay hands on him and kill him. Because of this, the privilege of being in the kingdom would be taken from them exclusively. So it was their fault. But it was all providential. Which leads us to our second principle. The kingdom of God will be given. So it will be taken from some and it will be given to those who bear fruits of repentance. So in response to their answer, because he asked them in, in verse 41, he would destroy the wicked man miser miserably. That was the answer. And lease his vineyard to other vine dressers. <laughs> They're giving their self-condemning answer right there. Who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. So in their response, Jesus quotes again Psalm 118. Now this psalm speaks of unexpected revolution. A stone that the builders thought they could not use, it was unsuitable and they rejected it. It became the most important stone in the building because it says the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. So the stone that the builders thought they could not use, guess what? It, 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 it was the one that was the most important stone in the building. And now it was the chief cornerstone. Such it was and is with Christ. The religious leaders thought that he was not useful. That's why they rejected Christ. They rejected his ministry because they didn't think that he was useful. He was a threat to them. But he was their Messiah and Savior to all who believed in him. They thought that the ministry of Christ was useless. But that ministry was more important to them than they realized. The one that they rejected was the very one who was sent to save them. Think about that in a sense of evangelism and ministering the gospel to people who are rejecting the only hope that they have. That's what people do when they reject Christ, when they reject the gospel. They're rejecting the very hope that they're looking for. They're rejecting the very person <clears throat> who can save them from the misery that they're in. That's what they're doing. Because that is the deception of our enemy. He tells, oh, you can do it on your own. You don't need anyone. You're good. You can save yourself. You're your own God. You, you can live life on your own terms. You don't you listen to those old religious people. Oh, this God doesn't exist anywhere. I mean, come on. This, 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 this life means nothing. I mean, you know, why do you need to be weak and follow some Christianity thing? That's what they say. They, they scoff. But what they're doing is rejecting the very hope that they need. They're rejecting it. The thing about this stone is, it says here, verse 44, whoever falls on it will be broken. Anyone who falls on it will be crushed, and we'll explain what that means. While the person on whom it falls will be pulverized. ground to powder, that means to pulverize. Now there's a difference that is pointed out here by uh, Leon Morris in his commentary. He says, fall on it, and there's a touch of mercy even here, and you will be broken. But the broken man can be healed. But let it fall on you, and you will be ground to dust. And there is no healing 
then. So basically, the one who falls on this stone will repent. That's what it means to be broken. But the one on whom it falls will be judged. That's what it means to be ground to powder. This is the same principle as the last parable. This is the same principle we talk about all the time about the gospel message. The, the same sun that melts wax hard in his clay. The gospel either breaks men in repentance or hardens them in their sins. It, it is only two things that the gospel does. There's no third way, no fourth way, no fifth way. There are only two responses to the gospel. Brokenness or hardening. Any person that hears the gospel who is an unbeliever, they're going to be broken when they hear it and say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord, save me. Lord, I, I, am, a, I am a wretch. I am a wicked wretch. Lord, save me. Or they're going to hear that message, nod their hand in agreement, and be, be hardened even more. The same stone, Christ, that was rejected. Whomever falls on this stone, or whomever falls on the stone will be broken into repentance. But on whomever it falls, they will be judged. You want to be among the people who fall on that stone for, for mercy, begging for mercy, pleading for mercy, falling on Christ. Lord, save me. Lord, I'm tired of running from you. I'm, 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 I'm tired. I'm, I'm weary. Lord, save me. Lord, be merciful to me. A sinner, Lord, I turn to you. Save me. And God is merciful to save to all those who call upon him, who fall on that chief cornerstone. Christ is the only building block on which a person's life can be built. It's like the old hymn, all of the ground is wet, sinking sand. Christ is the only stone in which a person can build their life on. Because he's the chief cornerstone. And when people reject that, it's going to fall on them. And they're going to be judged. So that's part of that message in that verse. So after Christ quotes from Psalm 118, he also declares that his church should shortly be taken out of the hands of the Pharisees and the elders and the priests and put into the hands of the apostles for gospel ministry. He says here, the kingdom of God will be taken from you, chief priests, elders, Pharisees, and they will go into the hands of of those who will bear the fruits of it. It's startling. We don't think about this enough when we read uh, the Gospels and, and you know the book of Acts up until now where we are. But it's startling to know that the Gospel ministry was originally intended for the religious Jews. That's who it was originally intended for. He came unto his own. But it says his own received him not. But Jesus came to his own. And it says his own people, his own nation. He came to save, to give Israel true salvation because they wanted to be taken out from under Roman oppression. But Christ offered them something even better. He offered them salvation. He told them he's the bread of life. He's the pearl of great price. He is the great shepherd. He is the door of the sheep. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Before Abraham was, I am. He's the one true God. 
He came to them proclaiming him as the one whom God sent. But what do they keep doing? Rejecting him. Rejecting him. Rejecting him. So it is startling to know that the gospel ministry was intentionally, intentionally, I'm sorry, originally intended for the religious Jews. But their constant rejection of the gospel giver, Jesus, led the Lord to take that ministry from them and gave it to the apostles. You talk about providence. That's providence right there. He gave that gospel ministry to the apostles. Now the kingdom will be taken away from them and given to those who would respond to it more adequately. To those who would produce its fruits. You don't want to cast pearls before swine. You want to give it to those who will be fruitful. Think about it in a practical sense. You are an employer. You hire people. You're going to give a job to the person who can help your company the most, right? Who can be the most productive. Who's going to bear the most fruit. And you will reward them for that. You're not going to give someone who's lazy or someone who takes it for granted or someone who criticizes or ridicules you as the owner. No, you're going to give it to someone who's going to be what? Fruitful. Who's going to, who's going to be worth their salt. Who's going to be worth their weight in gold. We see something like this in this passage. He's going to give it to those who respond more adequately. Give it to a nation bearing the fruits thereof. Now, Leon Morris says this about that. He says, Jesus is telling his hearers that deeds speak louder than words and that their failure of the chief priests and the Pharisees to respond to all that God has done for them will reap its inevitable reward. That did not mean that God would not establish his kingdom. He would do so, but with people who live fruitful lives. The words foreshadow the appearance of the Christian church. And so that's why it says here in verse 45, when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. They knew that he was talking about them. And so to use our modern language, they were triggered. <laughs> they knew he was speaking of them. And what did they do? They sought to do what? Lay hands on them. You know, that's, that's something to think about. People say the truth hurts, right? It does. But the truth hurts in a salving way. It's, it, it hurts in a healing way. Well, at least it's supposed to. The same gospel that cuts also heals. The same truth of God that cuts also heals. It's like a parent telling their child, you don't need to do that, or this is going to happen to you. That's something my parents told me when I was growing up. I thought they were like being mean or didn't love me or whatever. It hurt my feelings when I couldn't take my daddy's car and go somewhere. <laughs> okay. It hurt, but it was the truth. The same truth that cuts also heals. The same gospel that tells you you are a sinner, you're, there's nothing good about you, that hurts. It hurts our ego, right? Because we think we are that. Read uh, Romans 3, there's none who does good. No, not one. You're not a good person. You know, Dr. Minish down at... Uh, Faith Christian School, he has one of these things. He, he, he tells his students, you're not special. And they didn't like what he said there, but then after being in his class for a long time, they, they, they realized, Doc's right, I'm not special. There's nothing special about me. 
I'm not that special. I'm not. None of us are. But we don't want to hear that, do we? But it is the truth. It cuts. But it also heals because it shows us that we're not as adequate in ourselves as we think we are. We're not as confident in ourselves as we think we are. We're, we're not as self-sufficient as we think we are. We are weak. If you don't think you're weak, experience some pain in your body. <laughs> you'll realize then, I'm weak. Because you're going to say what? Ouch! That what? Hurts. I tell y'all this a couple weeks ago. I was umpiring a football game uh, up in Sacks, and uh, man, I got ran into by some players, by a couple of guys. I got hit so hard. I thought I brought, I thought I dislocated my my hip. I did. It, it was. Oh, I mean, they two guys fell into me, and and I was able to limp off the field under my own recognizance. But I was real dizzy, you know, lightheaded because that's what happens when you get trauma to your body. You begin to feel weak and. And man, I had to—I I couldn't come back in. I had to eventually leave and, and um, make it home. But man, I, I realized in that moment I'm 50 years old. Okay, and uh, it, it took about two weeks for for my body to kind of recover. Although I'm probably about 100 percent now because I did a game last week. But it, it took about a couple weeks for my body to just—man, I feel like I got I beat up. I mean, I really did. I mean, it, it was it was it was it was some bad pain. But that, that moment when I got hit, ran to by those players, I realized, man, I'm, I'm mortal. I could have blew out my knee or something worse could have happened. In those moments, you realize you're not as strong and mighty as you think you are. That truth hurts, but it's also a healing truth because it shows you, hey, you have to trust in God. You can't, you can't be so prideful. You can't be so full of yourself. You need God. And you have to get out the way. Amen. <laughs> you need God. That is the truth. You need God. You can't do it by yourself. No. You never can. You never will. That is the truth. It hurts, but it heals. Because you don't have to do all the performance stuff anymore and, and keep trying to just show yourself to be strong. No, show yourself to be weak. Show yourself to be someone who needs God and who can't do it without God's help. Who can't do it without God, period. That is the truth. And the Christian church has advocated her responsibility to proclaim the truth. The Pharisees and chief priests couldn't handle the truth of Messiah. That Christ is the Messiah of God, the one sent of God. That he is God himself in the flesh. They rejected that truth, but that was the very truth that they needed. And so Christ said, okay, We'll give it to those who will be fruitful. And praise the Lord, the gospel went to us as Gentiles. And here we have the Christian church that is full of Jews and Gentiles alike. Amen. Amen. We thank the Lord for that. Applications or implications here. First thing is, this is one of the most more important, was to reject the gospel message is to reject God himself because the gospel is the gospel of God. It's God's gospel. It belongs to him. You know, people think, oh, oh I don't want to hear that. Well, guess what? They're rejecting God. Oh, no, no, yes, you are. It's God's gospel. If you're rejecting the gospel, you're rejecting God himself because it is his gospel. And he sent us to proclaim his gospel. Just as these people, these religious leaders, they were rejecting the gospel message of Christ, they were rejecting God himself. 
Failure to respond to the gospel message will result in being expelled from the kingdom of God. You got so many people out there who are self-deceived. They think they can reject the gospel all their life, and somehow at their funeral, people are going to sing them or pray them into heaven. No amount of tears, no amount of sorrow, no amount of grief, no matter, no amount of expense of your casket or your funeral is going to cause you to enter the kingdom of God if you fail to respond positively to the gospel message. I don't care how expensive your funeral is. I don't care if they, they can bury you in a Harley Davidson. I, I saw a funeral like that about five, six, seven years ago. A guy was buried on his, you know, they embalmed his body sitting on his Harley. That was his head like in a uh, glass. I can imagine how many tens of thousands of dollars it cost to look glass enclosure and he had his shades on and they embalmed him like that sitting on his hall and that's how he was buried. Oh you oh man, it's, it's some stuff out there. Yeah, I showed you I showed a friend that before just just Google it, uh guy buried buried on Harley and you'll you'll see it. But the point is if that man didn't receive Christ that, that well, it's a waste of money anyway, first of all. But he not, he's, not, he's not going up. He's going down. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so if you don't respond positively to the gospel message, you will be expelled from the kingdom of God. And that's what we see in this parable. And that's, that is what will happen to those who fail to turn to Christ in repentance. They will not be part of the kingdom of God. What did Jesus tell Nicodemus? Except the man be what? Born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. They can't, cannot. It's impossible. And lastly, as the chief cornerstone, Christ will either break men in repentance or crush them in judgment. And in judgment, they will be crushed. They will be sentenced to eternal damnation, eternal torment, eternal sorrow, Eternal, eternal tears, eternal weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's how they will be crushed. They won't be annihilated. They won't be done away with. There's going to be conscious torment. That is what they're going to receive. But our hope and prayer for all of our loved ones that we pray for, for the visitors that we pray for, and others is that Christ will break them in repentance. That the day that they hear his voice, that they don't harden their hearts, but rather, when they hear that call to repent, they turn and believe in Christ. Amen. Amen. With that, let us go before the Lord in prayer as we close out. Father, we thank you for the gospel message. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege of preaching the gospel. We thank you for the proclamation of gospel throughout all the world on this Lord's Day. Lord, we pray this morning, starting here at our church and, and uh, those who hear this voice and hear this podcast, Lord, that those who are not saved that when they hear this message, that they repent, that they turn to you as the chief cornerstone and be saved. We pray, Lord, that they do not reject this message or else they will be crushed in judgment. Lord, all of us have loved ones. All of us have friends. All of us have coworkers. All of us you know, we have visitors that come to our church who, who are not saved. Lord, we pray for all of them that, Lord, when they hear the message of the gospel, that they will turn and be saved, that you will soften their hearts and bring them to repentance. Lord, that they not harden their hearts. Our co-workers, our friends, our family members, loved ones, visitors, Lord, we want to depopulate hell. 
and populate heaven with people from all nations, from all walks of life. And Lord, give us boldness, give us gospel boldness to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, to, to share the good news of salvation. Lord, we say it all the time, man's greatest malady is sin, but man's greatest hope is salvation in and through Jesus Christ. People are struggling. People are in sin. May we show them the hope that can only be found through salvation in Jesus Christ. Lord, bless this message. May it convict sinners and convince them, and may it encourage the saints. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Amen. Amen.